We'll just say for those that are on Zoom, welcome. We are just getting started. Dr. Afrin and I are here, but we haven't officially um, done the introduction. I just were broadcasting to let people in, and then I'm going to actually link to the Facebook feed and get that started, and then we will officially do the introduction. So welcome to those that are with us. Um, thank you for your patience as I get this feed started on the, our Facebook page, and then we'll go from there. So welcome. Welcome to everybody. Welcome, Dr. Afrin. Welcome to everybody that's joining us live via Zoom and on Facebook. The Facebook feed looks just good. as a reminder for those that uh, have not read. We, this is a live Q&A with Dr. Afrin. We are so appreciative for him to be here with us, um, but that we are going to keep it to just an hour based upon time and schedule. We're going to try to get to as many questions as possible. There have been several questions via email, which I'll try to incorporate as well. Um, anything that we do not get to, we'll try to answer as we can, maybe via email or on posts on our page. Um, but please understand that it takes a lot uh, sometimes to explain questions and uh, it details to make sure that their things are clear and that fully understood. So we just appreciate Dr. Afrin's time. I don't want to take too much of it talking. Um, so I am Kendra Nielsen-Miles. I am the mass cell research director of the page. And I also help publish Dr. Afrin's book through my small media company. Uh, I also am the founder and executive director of EDS Wellness, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that Dr. Afford has been nice and generous to speak for before. So that's where some of you may see me. Um, I, my work does overlap a little bit. So just to not make sure that everybody's not confused. And I just taught yoga online. So <laughs> that's where I come from. So with that, without further ado, we're just going to get started. Dr. Afrin, are you, uh, do you have anything that you would like me to, to, would like to say first? Congratulations on the publication of several papers recently, by the way, too. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with one question uh, that's already in the Q&A on Zoom. So uh, somebody's asking, my genetics histamine pathway shows NAT2 gene slow. Any suggestions? Let me, if you want me to read it again, I can. It says genetics no, histamine I, pathway I NAT2 gene. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a geneticist, uh, but all I can say is I'm not familiar myself with any fashion in which uh, that would interact with uh, mast cell disease in any way. And I think it's important, too, to understand that everybody has two copies of every gene. And uh, if only one copy of the gene is mutated, um, it's quite possible there may not be any clinically significant effects from it at all. Um, when people have both copies of the gene mutated, uh, sometimes there can be more significant consequences of that, but it really depends on the particulars, depends on the gene, depends on the particular mutation. So um, I, I've just not previously heard that gene uh, come up with regard to uh, any aspects of behavior of mast cell disease. All right, uh, moving on to the next question that I have on Zoom, uh, and I also am taking questions under the feed on our Facebook page. So for those that are watching on Facebook, you can ask questions or please do ask the questions underneath the feed on our mast cell Facebook page. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna share the feed elsewhere but uh, please keep the questions either in Zoom or underneath the, the, the feed under the mast cell research page because I am also gonna try to 
take questions that have been emailed. So it's just hard to keep toggling back and forth. Um, so I'm trying to be fair. So how is how well is the role of HNMT understood with regard to histamine cleaning or clearing, especially as it might involve neurological symptoms? Do you want me to repeat? Yeah, it, no, I, I, I've got the question. HNMT okay. um, is uh, the gene for the enzyme called histidine and methyltransferase, which is a real mouthful, which is why we abbreviate it as HNMT. And this is the key enzyme uh, in the human body for metabolizing and, and breaking down the histamine that is generated internally within the body. There, there's a different enzyme called diamine oxidase or DAO that is limited to just the lining of the intestinal tract. And the purpose of that enzyme is to break down the histamine we bring in through our diet so that we're not uh, then absorbing through the GI tract um, uh, too much histamine from the diet. But with regard to the histamine that's generated inside the body, um, HNMT is the dominant uh, metabolic pathway um, for, for the internally generated or what we call endogenous histamine. And there are occasional people who have mutations in HNMT which greatly impair the functioning of that enzyme. So in those patients, they wind up um, uh, pretty much constantly having significantly elevated histamine levels because they just can't break down the histamine that's uh, generated and, and released inside the body. Um, and since there are lots of histamine receptors, uh, H1 type receptors, H2, H3, H4, H5, on lots of different types of cells all throughout the body, including on the surfaces of the mast cells themselves, then obviously if you got extra histamine floating around, it can be problematic, it can lead to excessive activation of the neurons, excessive activation of the mast cells, excessive activation of the uh, acid-making cells uh, in the stomach, and uh, other types of cells as well. So yeah, having a mutation in HNMT that impairs the functioning of the enzyme that's produced from that gene, that can be problematic. But fortunately, uh, these sorts of mutations appear to be fairly rare. All right. Um, here's a good question about oxidative stress. So can the overloading of oxidative stress trigger MCAS to ultimately change it or change, can it, can it ultimately change MCAS to a form of mastocytosis after aggravation of extreme PTSD, stress, and other physical decline? Basically, yeah. can stress take MCAS to mastocytosis? Yeah, there are a couple of issues here. First of all, uh, rather than focus just on oxidative stress, let's just make the statement that stressors, major stressors of any sort, uh, physical stressors uh, like uh, surgery or trauma or 
um, uh, puberty or pregnancy or childbirth or major uh, uh, in, infectious uh, stressors like major infection. Uh, so, so either major physical stressors or major psychological or emotional stressors uh, have long been recognized as capable of uh, triggering either brief flarings or sometimes even permanent escalations in the, in the baseline misbehavior of, of the dysfunctional mast cells in MCAS. Um, so, you know, in general, try to avoid stress as much as you can, but obviously uh, the, the fact is for most folks that you've just got no way to predict when you're gonna get hit by a major stressor. It just happens and you deal with it as best you can. Now, this issue of stress coming to either temporarily or permanently uh, flare and escalate uh, mast cell activation disease, that, that's kind of a, a somewhat different situ uh, uh, issue from uh, the issue of does MCAS uh, transform into mastocytosis? And I'm certainly not going to be so stupid as to say that cannot happen. We learn real early in our medical training to never say never. Uh, but I've seen several thousand MCAS patients in the last dozen years, uh, and I have been indirectly involved with the cases of several thousand more patients. And so far, I have yet to run into even a single patient in whom it's clear that they previously had MCAS and that that transformed into mastocytosis. So I'm not going to say it can't happen, but, you know, here we are a dozen years, actually 13 years now, past the publication of the first case reports of MCAS. And so far, there's not been even a single case report published. Uh, of any MCAS patient having transformed to any form of mastocytosis. And I haven't seen any clear-cut cases of it. So again, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but if it does happen, it, probably it's very, very rare. Now, this is a different situation from the situation of whether the uh, various forms of mastocytosis can transform into more aggressive uh, forms of mastocytosis. And that situation has been studied. There are some large studies in the literature on that. Uh, one study, for example, was done at Mayo a number of years ago. Another study was done by the Spanish mast cell group in this area. A number of years ago. And these studies are pretty clear that with the, um, uh, the dominant form of the rare disease that is systemic mastocytosis, the dominant form being indolent systemic mastocytosis, a form that progresses very slowly, um, 
those patients with indolent systemic mastocytosis actually do have a small, very small, but non-zero chance of progressing at various points in their lives to more aggressive forms of mastocytosis. So we know that transformation happens from indolent mastocytosis to more aggressive forms, but so far nobody has documented a case of MCAS transforming to mastocytosis. So that, that's about all I can say about that. All right. Well, I think I appreciate that explanation. I know that's something that I've also questioned myself and been wondering about, especially when I first was learning about mast cell disease and, and my own family history. Here's another question that came from email. Somebody said, uh, I have a question about skin itching. I take H1 and H2 and chromolum oral, nasal and eye drops. I have moderate skin itching that ramps up severe when I react to something. This is both with and without eucateria. You could carry it. Am I saying that right? It's long day. Anyway, any other ideas for treatment? So it sounds like she's already taking things, but has severe itching that ramps up. Yeah. Well, I've got to first make the disclaimer that, you know, I'm in absolutely no position to be giving personalized medical treatment recommendations to anybody who's not my patient. And I hope the person who's asking this question is not my patient because asking for my advice on Zoom is probably not the way, uh, not the best way to be doing it. Um, you know, all I can say in general is that there are an awful lot of different medications that have been found helpful for various aspects of mast cell disease in various patients. And I get surprised almost every week when a patient sees me in follow-up and tells me about their experience with some drug I had them trying in the prior month or two, and they tell me that such and such a symptom is among the symptoms they got better, and gosh, based on my training, I never would have expected that drug to have helped that symptom. And I think it just goes to illustrate how complex the mediator signaling networks are in this disease. It's, there's so many different mediators that can interact in so many different ways to cause so many different symptoms that um, it's easily possible that drugs that, you, that, that a doctor might never have uh, thought would be useful for itching might actually turn out to be useful for itching. So beyond the H1 blockers and um, uh, chromalin, you know, there, there are other antihistamine drugs like the H2 blockers. I've had some patients tell me H2 blockers uh, help their itch when H1 blockers don't. I've had some patients tell me that the leukotriene blockers like Montelukast can help them. I've had um, patients tell me that the flavonoids like quercetin and luteolin can help. I have some patients in whom the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like uh, simple aspirin can be helpful for itching. Some people tell me that 
uh, CBD, cannabidiol, which is the uh, non-high producing cannabinoid. Um, so it's the anti-inflammatory cannabinoid that addresses the cannabinoid receptor on the surface of the mast cell. Uh, some patients tell me that molecule uh, is helpful in settling itching. And I could go on and on with all these other medications, but the point is that starting with H1 blockers is completely reasonable. But if it's not doing the trick, then you need to move on, you and your doctor need to move on and try, try, try. I, I preach to all of my own patients that the most important principles by far in managing this extraordinarily complex disease are for both the patient and the treating physician, both of them to practice an enormous amount of patience and persistence and a very methodical approach in stepping through the trials of the many, 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 many different drugs, which fortunately have been found helpful for various symptoms in various mast cell patients. Um, in the interest of time and all the other questions, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop at that point. I'll add one caveat, benzodiazepines. I know that that's something that's also been written about too, has been sometimes successful for mast cell patients. Has uh, that been, is that another category that you yeah, agree just, with that sometimes just, can help? Just another category of um, molecule that uh, can dock with the mast cell through the, uh, the benzo receptor and can help settle down at least some of the aspects of mast cell activation in some patients. I mean, like every class of drug, there are going to be some mast cell patients in whom the benzos do nothing. Uh, but then there are some patients in whom they're very helpful. Someday, I don't know, come back 50 or 100 years from now, and the state of the science in this area will have advanced. The research will have been done. The testing will have progressed and we'll have a much better idea as to why different patients with this disease are having different symptoms, uh, what the different molecular variants are for this disease from one patient to the next. And understanding the disease to that level of detail in the individual patient probably will start giving us ideas about which specific drugs are most likely to help which particular symptoms in which particular patients. But my God, it, it's gonna be decades of research to, to get to that point. So until then, I think we should all be happy <laughs> that um, A, we recognize the disease exists because up until about a decade ago, we didn't even realize it exists. Uh, and B, we ought to be happy that quite fortuitously, quite fortunately, we've already got a boatload of drugs which have been shown helpful in various patients with this disease. And that's a whole lot better situation 
than many people have with many other diseases that we've known about way longer than mast cell disease, but for which we still have only few to no drugs uh, available. So we're very, very early in our course of understanding mast cell disease. Everybody has got to keep that in mind. Um, and patients have to understand too, keep it in mind that there's not a doctor on the planet yet who's been trained in this. Every doctor who's coming to learn about this is learning on their own about this. So go easy on your doctors. If you encounter a doctor who doesn't seem to be willing to learn about this and willing to at least try to help you, then just courteously uh, remove yourself from that situation and if at all possible and go find another doctor who's willing to learn and willing to try. Uh, but uh, th th those doctors are out there. Uh, the ones who are willing to help, willing to learn, willing to try. And it's just a matter of finding them. Um, I think I wandered off topic there. No, you're, you're fine. All right. Next question comes off of Facebook. Somebody's mentioning focal seizures when exposed to chemicals, certain foods, or high levels of stress in general. Could that be t a type of mast cell reaction? And, and I will make the caveat just like you did that this video, this recording, this Q&A is for educational and informational purposes only. We're trying to ask the questions that have been asked more generally versus personally to keep it broad and understand that we can't give personal medical advice. So I'm gonna try to, if I don't question it appropriately, I'm gonna try to keep it broad for Dr. Afrin. Uh, we're trying to talk in general and for educational and informational purposes only. So yeah. focal seizures, is that a mast cell reaction? Could that be? It, it, it could be. There's no question that uh, mast cells are uh, closely um, interconnected with neurons all throughout the body, both in the central nervous system up in the brain, as well as out in the peripheral nervous system. And there's no question that mast cell uh, disease can cause real seizures, either generalized seizures or focal seizures. But um, you know, you, you generally need um, the electrical measurement of brainwave activity that you get from an electroencephalogram or EEG. You need an EEG test showing seizure activity in the brain to really have a clear diagnosis of seizure. And I, I bring that up because I just want to be sure folks are aware that there's this other phenomenon that to the untrained observer kind of looks like a seizure, but there are subtle differences um, uh, between a real seizure and what we call a pseudo seizure. But it turns out that there are these events called, and uh, fair, uh, they're, they're uh, dysfunctionings of the autonomic nervous system not true seizures, but they're, they're pseudo seizures. And pseudo seizures too can be driven by mast cell disease. Uh, the difference being, of course, that with, I mean, although mast cell targeted treatment, of course, could help both types of seizures, obviously, if you're having the 
quote, real, unquote, seizures, then your doctors need to be looking pretty hard at using traditional anti-seizure medications uh, first uh, to, to control a traditional seizure uh, syndrome. And, you know, if, if traditional seizure medications are not helping, or at least not helping enough, then maybe it's time to go looking for some other explanation as to what's going on. And if it happens to be a mast cell disorder, because it certainly can be a lot of other things too, but if it happens to be a mast cell disorder, then fine. You add mast cell targeted treatment onto that. And who knows, in some patients, you might get good enough control of the underlying problem that those patients might not even need uh, actual seizure medications anymore. Fascinating. I got to be honest. I learn something new even every day with uh, and working with you and what's been published. So I appreciate that. I know everybody else does as well, Dr. Offren. Another question uh, from the Facebook feed. Somebody mentioned talking about pain, teeth pain, jaw pain, teeth sensitivity. Could that be an MCAS symptom? And I'm going to take it one step further saying if you have that type of pain and it is an MCAS symptom, what can be done for pain that's related to MCAS issues, whether it's in your mouth or not. So it's twofold. Can those be a symptom of MCAS yeah. issues and what can you do? Well, tell you what, why don't we just constrain this question for the moment to the mouth? Cause talking about pain in general and MCAS I mean, there have been many, many papers written about that. We could spend the, the, the rest of the night uh, going into tomorrow morning talking about that. But uh, focusing on the mouth, uh, yes, it is certainly. Keep in mind that what mast cell activation syndrome is more than anything else is a chronic multi-system inflammatory disease. And what are the cardinal symptoms of inflammation? Well, you got temperature and redness and swelling and pain. Those are the four cardinal symptoms of inflammation. So, and, and also keep in mind the anatomy of, you know, where are the mast cells in the body? Well, in truth, they're everywhere in the body, but in most tissues in the body, they're present uh, in pretty uh, sparse distributions. But where they're dominantly cited at their densest uh, distributions is at the environmental interfaces. So the skin, the respiratory tract, the GI tract, and the genitourinary tract. So those environmental interfaces absolutely include the mouth. So you got a lot of mast cells in all the oral tissues. And when some portion of those mast cells are not working properly, when they're dysfunctional, which is the essence of the problem in MCAS, then they're going to be excessively releasing various inflammatory mediators and nobody would be surprised if somebody with MCAS uh, develops pain in various tissues in the mouth. Uh, maybe not constantly, maybe it's just intermittently, maybe it's waxing and waning, but uh, oral discomfort or sores or pain or inflammation 
is very common in MCAS. Um, as to what to, and, and not only oral pain, but let me point out too that when you have chronic inflammation uh, in the oral tissues, uh, it, it's just kind of hard to keep all those tissues in, in good health. So uh, another kind of related problem we, we often see uh, in, in the mouth that we often see in folks with mast cell disease is deterioration of one sort or another of the teeth and the gums. Um, people develop, for example, bleeding of the gums for no apparent reason, uh, especially when they just do some light flossing or, or toothbrushing. Uh, they develop cavities uh, galore despite the best personal and professional attention to dental hygiene um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and obviously it frustrates the hell out of the patients who know they're taking perfect care of their teeth and yet dentist visit after dentist visit after dentist visit, they keep getting told about more and more problems developing with their teeth. And so the patients get frustrated. Certainly the dentist gets frustrated because he knows the patient's doing a good job taking care of their teeth. And he knows he's doing a good job taking care of their teeth. And yet the teeth just, uh, the teeth and the other oral tissues just keep deteriorating. So in a mast cell patient, it's easily possible that this mysterious, ooh, this mysterious uh, deterioration is coming about from the inappropriate mast cell activation. And I began trying uh, a few years ago in some of the patients, some of my patients having this problem, a simple approach of having them um, uh, just do an oral rinse of a mast cell targeting treatment, like a liquid dye-free H1 blocker, like Benadryl or, or Claritin or Zyrtec or Allegra. Um, obviously, if it's a sedating H1 blocker like Benadryl, you may not want to swallow it because um, uh, it might just sedate you. You could just spit that out. But if it's a non-sedating H1 blocker, you could consider even swallowing it, and that could even perhaps take the place of uh, a, a, some other regularly dosed non-sedating H1 blocker, like a tablet or a capsule of, um, uh, you know, Claritin or, or Zyrtec, something like that. And, I've, you know, you'd want to do an oral rinse for 30 to 60 seconds, uh, uh, all about the, you know, try to hit all the oral surfaces in the mouth. And you probably want to do it after you brush your teeth, because if you do it before you brush your teeth and you're just brushing the medicine off the surfaces you're trying to protect. So you do the oral rinse after you brush your teeth, do it uh, once or twice a day. And it's been remarkable what I've seen in many of my patients who have 
try this approach. Now to be clear, just the same as I can say about any medication we try in this disease, it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, some people, the H1 blockers don't work. We switch them to something else like chromalin. Um, but I've, I've lost count of the number of mast cell patients I've had who have come back to me at the next visit. And, you know, in between, they've had the chance to go to the dentist for a checkup. And, they, and, and the dentist almost falls off his chair. He, he can't believe how much better the oral health uh, situation is just from the patient having applied uh, a few weeks of, of this treatment. Um, and, and when you get a response like that to you know, a simple H1 blocker or chromalin, uh, you, you, you know at that point that it's a mast cell-rooted uh, issue that, that's at the root of, of that trouble. Um, I've seen enough of these patients by now that I've actually been looking for a dentist, uh, collaborating, a, a dentist who would be willing to collaborate on publishing a series of these cases I've uh, been looking for a few years now, and I have yet to be able to find any dentist anywhere who'd be interested in collaborating on, on publishing this. Because I, I can't publish. It needs to be published in the dental literature, and I have no credentials to publish anything in the dental literature. I need a dentist to be a, a major co-author on that paper. Um, I don't even know the dental terminology. I need a dentist for that. Uh, and I haven't found one yet, but so, so I can't say there's been any study on this. Um, again, we're so early in our understanding of this disease that everybody should kind of expect that the great majority of what we come to learn about this is going to be anecdotal in nature. It is what it is for the time being. There will be time in the future for much more rigorous studies. But so what I'm what I'm telling everybody right now about the oral rinses, this is all just anecdotal. Um, there, I, I can't possibly cite any scientifically reliable statistics about the likelihood that this treatment is going to help any given patient, but. It's just something I've observed for a few years now, and uh, it's making a difference for some patients. Well, thank you. Um, somebody, is, uh, somebody was just recently diagnosed, uh, and the physician wants to do an LA panel, but is waiting until infection is over. What would be the reason for uh, doing an LA panel? It's LPA, LPA panel, sorry. Well, I'm not familiar with an LPA panel. Um, it's possible that they're talking about an individual test whose full name is abbreviated as LPA. This would be a lipoprotein A test. Um, we know that lipoprotein A um, is found significantly elevated in some patients who have cl the cholesterol buildup problem that we call atherosclerosis. 
that can lead to obstructions in the arteries that cause heart attacks and strokes and, and other vascular problems. And although the majority of folks who have atherosclerosis have elevations in regular cholesterol or triglycerides, we've been learning the last 15 years or so that some of these folks with advanced atherosclerosis have elevated levels of LPA, uh, regardless of whether they've got elevations in cholesterol or triglycerides. Um, we don't know yet what's actually driving those elevations in LPA in those patients who have that finding. Um, so it's my, my best guess as to what they're asking is, is about lipoprotein A. Sounds good. Can you comment uh, quickly, uh, not quickly, it's a quicker question, I'm sorry, not that your comment would be quickly or explanation, but somebody's just mentioning what your position is on Gleevec for mast cell treatment when no other treatment works. Well, my, sit, my, my position really hasn't changed since I saw in my very first patient in whom I came to make uh, a diagnosis of MCAS. And, and just to be crystal clear on this again, I am not the first person to have uh, recognized the existence of MCAS. There are other doctors out there far smarter than I am who first recognized this and wrote about it in the literature. But when I came to work out the diagnosis in my own first patient, um, long story short, I started her on a matinib uh, because there was already information in the medical literature suggesting it had a good chance of helping her. And indeed, it was terrifically helpful in her and at... Uh, a very low dose, much lower than the standard dosing that's typically used in the much more typical scenario for using that drug in, in which we use that drug to treat a type of leukemia called uh, chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, and I have since found that many other patients uh, also... Uh, many other MCAS patients do respond well to MCAS. I have found also some who uh, don't respond at all. It just doesn't do anything for them. And I've also found a few who seem to have uh, some adverse reactions, but usually when that happens, it's not so much the drug they're reacting to, rather it's one or more of the excipients, the, the fillers, the binders, the dyes, the preservatives that just happen to be mixed in with the drug imatinib in the particular formulation of imatinib that the pharmacist or the insurer just randomly selected for the patient to try. Um, so nobody should go taking away from this webinar uh, the notion that 
uh, Gleevec or, or imatinib is a panacea for mast cell activation syndrome any more than any other drug is. I mean, there are some patients it's going to help, other patients it's not. Uh, bottom line is that it's a reasonable drug to try for this disease. And what holds me back more than anything else from trying it more often in my patients is that I practice in the U.S. And thanks to various quirks in the U.S., imatinib is insanely expensive in the U.S. Far, far, far more expensive than on, in any other country on the planet. Uh, give you a quick example. Name brand Gleevec is currently selling for about $150,000 a year here in the U.S., whereas in New Zealand, you can get a year's supply of imatinib for about 300 bucks. Um, so if imatinib were, I mean, we, we know the mechanism by which imatinib works in mast cell activation syndrome, which frankly is a whole lot better situation than we got for an awful lot of the other drugs we try for this disease where we're still trying to work out what the mechanism is. So we know how the drug works. And if the drug were a whole lot cheaper, I'd probably be trying it a whole lot sooner in many of my patients. But when it's costing $150,000 a year, and I have no way yet to predict whether any of the other cheaper drugs might work just as well, then it seems kind of irresponsible to just start using imatinib right out of the starting gate. Uh, instead, the appropriate uh, approach would be to try the other cheaper drugs. Um, and if they don't work, then fine. You eventually make your way to the more expensive drugs. All right. Somebody actually just does an antidote information mentioned that GoodRx has generic Levac that's quite cheap now. I don't know if that is for everybody, but just somebody mentioned that. I figured I'd mention that too in case others might be interested or maybe for your own information, Dr. Afrin, somebody gave that feedback. So um, uh, somebody said, assuming this isn't urgent, this is related to COVID now, if you're comfortable uh, answering this. So somebody's asking this on Zoom. Assuming it's not urgent, would you recommend holding off appointments and tests considering the risks of COVID? Um, I'm assuming in relation to MCAS or maybe in general that you can ask, just talking about, do we wait if it's, if it's not urgent? Yeah. Um, well, if a problem is not urgent, then, then what's the urgency? Uh, I mean, I think the question kind of answers itself. Um, I, I'm not sure what else to say about that. I think people... We can't you know, wait forever, I, been, I guess. That's the question is we can't really wait forever. And well, COVID is arguably, yeah, not going to go everybody away. Everybody has to make their own decision about this. And, you know, a lot of things I've been hearing and reading about COVID kind of makes me wonder whether mass cell activation is might be part of what is leading um, uh, 
some people, unfortunately, to suffer very severe cases of that disease. Um, but it's been kind of interesting that the, uh, I, I've had several patients, uh, uh, several of my own patients now, who unfortunately have suffered uh, the COVID-19 illness. And all of them so far have had, and again, this is entirely anecdotal. This is not a study, but anecdotally, every single one of the patients, uh, my, my uh, already diagnosed and at least somewhat treated mast cell patients who have developed COVID-19 illness, they have fortunately have only had mild to moderate cases of the disease, not requiring ER visits, not requiring hospitalization, certainly not requiring an ICU stay or a ventilator, and, and none of them have died. Um, and I find myself wondering whether maybe what's going on with some of the unfortunate folks who are suffering very severe cases of COVID-19. I mean, we, we, we all know at this point that MCAS likely is a very prevalent disease. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising that some of the folks who are developing COVID-19 probably have MCAS, although we also know that the great majority, the vast majority of people who have MCAS have not yet been recognized as having MCAS. And if they're not recognized and they're not diagnosed, if they're not diagnosed, they're not treated. And if they're not treated, they're not controlled. Um, so you almost have to wonder if unrecognized, undiagnosed, untreated, uncontrolled mast cell activation might be playing into why some COVID patients are having very severe courses of the disease, basically a matter of the uncontrolled dysfunctional mass, uh, mass cells in those patients, then getting provoked by the virus and having not the, and then producing not the normal reaction that normal mast cells would mount against any virus, but rather an abnormal hyperinflammatory response because that's what dysfunctional mast cells in MCAS do. So it's just been interesting that my patients who were already diagnosed and treated, um, they've only had mild to moderate courses of the disease. And one wonders if maybe uh, some mast cell targeted treatment. I mean, people have found a lot of different things to try to help severe COVID patients. And it's just been kind of interesting how many of those things actually have potential for helping in mast cell activation syndrome. Uh, you probably saw the reports, Kendra, a few weeks back that famotidine, you know, the H2 blocker famotidine is now being investigated as a treatment for COVID. Um, I saw just this last week out of Canada, 
that uh, there's now a clinical trial gearing up. Uh, some doctors there think they have seen that cannabidiol, CBD, has been helping some COVID patients. So lots of different treatments are being tried, and uh, many of the treatments that are being tried, we already know they have activity against mast cell activation. So I, I'm just doing a lot of ruminating, hypothesizing here again, no research, no studies, no data, just anecdotes. Um, and we'll just have to see how this situation develops. But so far from what I've seen in my patients, it makes me kind of hopeful that if a patient already is known to have MCAS and is already on at least some treatment for the MCAS, then even if they do get the infection, I'm hopeful that they'll have only a mild to moderate, in other words, a survivable course of the infection. And that's, that's the whole key here is, you know, uh, having a survivable course of the disease. For sure. Um, somebody mentioned along those lines of talking about our mast cell medications that some of us may take on a daily basis with, uh, with one of the retinidine no longer available and another H2 blocker not really as effective as that for that, you know, some patients. Uh, is there something that you are recommending in general since that's not available and maybe something else is not as effective for them? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for that. Um, you know, I, I think in my, my own personal opinion, I think the FDA has uh, grossly prematurely removed uh, ranitidine from the U.S. market. Um, and, and they've kind of partially recalled nizatidine, uh, the, the prescription H2 blocker as well. Uh, due to alleged contamination issues for which I have yet to see anywhere a single shred of data substantiating the FDA's contention that uh, these drugs uh, contain this NDMA uh, uh, contaminant, uh, this carcinogen, at a level significant enough to actually increase the risk of any type of cancer in anybody. Frankly, NDMA is also found in cooked meat. Every time you cook meat, you produce NDMA in it, and you actually take in far more NDMA through cooked meat than you could ever take in through, uh, even if you use Zantac your whole life. Uh, and furthermore, when the FDA issued the recall, they very naively um, made the assertion that all the other H2 blockers are functionally equivalent. I think that was their term, functionally equivalent to ranitidine. Uh, so it wouldn't matter. Uh, they, they said if they took ranitidine off the market and that may be true, the functional equivalence for the majority of folks who use the H2 blockers, but there is no question in the mast cell population that different mast cell patients respond differently to the different H2 blockers. Um, and I have some patients who have uh, done, uh, who have seen 
little benefit from other H2 blockers and then done terrifically on ranitidine. And I am at a loss as to what to tell these patients. Uh, even if ranitidine is still available somehow through a compounding pharmacy, I think patients can understand that a U.S.-based doctor can no longer responsibly recommend the use of ranitidine by any route for any patient, given that the FDA has recalled it, regardless of whether the basis for the recall is valid or not. Uh, so I, I just don't have a solution for this. And all I can recommend is that patients who have been affected by the recall, uh, number one, try the other H2 blockers as best you can access them and settle on the one that works the best for you. And I guess the only other thing to do is pray that the FDA uh, gets a lick of brains knocked back into their heads and brings uh, ranitidine back to the market. Um, I don't really see a practical way of getting rid of this alleged contaminant because the fact is that NDMA is a natural breakdown product of ranitidine. I mean, every bottle of ranitidine that's ever been produced since the 1980s has had NDMA in it. Uh, and yet in the 40 or so years we've been using ranitidine, Nobody has ever seen an increase in the rate of, in the risk of cancer for any type of cancer in the ranitidine using population, which by now mounts into the hundreds of millions of patients worldwide and, and billions of doses have been given. So it, it's just a strange thing the FDA has done and I hope they'll eventually bring it back to the market, but I don't know what else to do about that. Write your congressman. There you go. Write your congressman. <laughs> There's so much research and information to do and so many questions that even just seem to be asked more and more. It brings up so many different things. Speaking of recent research, and I know we're kind of getting towards the end of the time and what your availability, this is along the biological lines of understanding MCAS and just the allergic reaction. Somebody asked, New evidence has shown neutrophil increase in participation in the allergic response. Is there any link between mast cell activation and the recruitment of neutrophils? Is this an increase of neutrophils something that you personally see in mast cell disease patients, maybe especially during a degranulation event as severe as anaphylaxis? Well, we have to keep in mind that neutrophils are a key component of the immune system. It, it, it's the dominant form of the white blood cell. And anytime you've got inflammation in a given area in the body, there is going to be an influx of neutrophils into that area. And the bone marrow is going to start ramping up its production of neutrophils and neutrophils which ordinarily adhere to the inner lining of the blood vessels 
neutrophils will start detaching from the lining of the blood vessels and, and entering actively into circulation. Anytime you got an inflammatory situation. So it's extremely common to see neutrophils increase when there is an acute inflammatory scenario. Uh, whether that scenario is brought on by a spell of mast cell activation or anything else like an infection. All right. Um, I know that it's almost nine o'clock. Dr. Afrin, how many questions would you like me to, would you like me to ask a couple more? Or what, I want to be cognizant of your time. Let's, let's just, we probably only have time for one more. Okay. Uh, this is along the lines of, you've just published or co-authored an article having to do with GI issues and the relationship with mast cell, mast cells in relation to GI issues. Somebody mentioned what's the link or can MCAS cause gastroparesis? I've got a lot of mast cell patients who unfortunately have uh, been suffering, long suffering gastroparesis. Um, uh, we, we don't have, I'm including one of them. <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the hard research needed to figure out exactly the mechanism, the, the molecular mechanism by which mast cells can drive gastroparesis, that research has not been done. So all we can say at this point is that gastroparesis certainly is associated with mast cell disease. And I've got no end of patients where when we get their mast cell disease in general under better control, then we see improvement in the gastroparesis among, among their many other symptoms that get better. But if you're gonna ask me which particular mediators uh, or which combinations of mediators coming out of the dysfunctional mast cells um, actually interact with the other tissues in the GI tract and the, the, the neurons in the GI tract to slow down gastric motility and produce this, uh, you know, the, the, this state that we call gastroparesis. No, no, nobody's done that research yet. We don't know what the specific mediators are. If we did know that, we probably already have great treatments uh, for gastroparesis. And as any gastroparesis sufferer knows, no, we don't have any great treatments for gastroparesis, not yet. But hopefully in time, as more and more of the medical profession becomes more aware of mast cell disease and the very, very wide range of problems that mast cell activation causes, researchers will increasingly turn their attention to the mast cell and start looking at exactly what I've been talking about. You know, what mediators specifically might be causing the gastroparesis part of the whole mast cell presentation picture. And once we figure out that that mechanism of action, it's often a short uh, walk from that point to the point of having some useful treatments. So hang in there. Uh, we're gonna keep working at it. 
All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Dr. Afrin. I appreciate everybody's questions. I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I, uh, I'm sorry if we couldn't get to everybody's questions that either emailed us, asked on Zoom or on Facebook, but we definitely love to be able to do this when Dr. Afrin's time permits. I know I appreciate your time, Dr. Afrin, as a patient and both professionally. And um, for those that uh, we didn't get to their questions, you know, hopefully we can find a way to maybe help answer uh, at a later time, whether it's through another Q&A or maybe on our website. Uh, I am currently in the middle of working on redoing the MASA research website uh, with a website designer. So I'm hoping to find a way to kind of streamline these kind of questions that we get. I know Dr. Afrin's time is very limited and he's so busy and we just appreciate it. Maybe there's an easy way to kind of answer these, these questions. Um, you know, in different various formats. And the recording will be also available uh, off of Zoom once I get the edited recording from Zoom and upload it. So Dr. Afrin, do you have any last bits of advice or pieces of information to give everybody? We, again, thank you for your time. Yeah, advice, um, <laughs> patience, persistence, and a methodical approach. And if the doctors you're working with presently for one reason or another, it doesn't even matter what the reasons are. If they're just not turning out to be the right doctors to help you with this, then do your best to find other doctors. Because I promise you, there are those doctors out there who are willing to learn and willing to try. And anytime any other doctors out there ever want to have any discussions with me about the disease, they're, they're more than welcome to contact me. My contact information is no secret. I know it's, it's out there in a million places. My email address and my practice's phone number and all that. I'm always happy to talk to other doctors who want to learn. Um, just the way I started learning about this back at the beginning. Yeah, and I will say that when we have re received emails to Mass Cell Research and I immediately forward them to you, you are always very respectful and kind and generous with answering questions quickly and, and also helping the providers that have emailed as well. So I appreciate that. And I know I personally am going to find work on the dentist part. All I think right. there Best are some that are definitely willing. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Dr. Afrin, for your time. As always, it's always wonderful to work with you. Thank you, everybody, for your patience and your questions, and we'll keep continuing to work together. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. Stay well and healthy. All right. Bye, Kendra. Bye. Okay.